The ingredients for today's episode are Manon Lascaux, Doom, and French Champagne. I'm Andy Anderson, the mischievous maestro, and we're mixing up the perfect combination. Pop quiz. What do Massenet, Madonna, Puccini, and Cyndi Lauper all have in common? The answer? They all came up with music portraying women who know exactly what they want and who aren't shy about admitting it. Of course, we are talking about Massenet's opera Manon, Puccini's opera Manon Lascaux, Cyndi Lauper's song Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and Madonna's smash hit Material Girl. But we will get to all of that in just a few minutes. First, we have to briefly talk about Edgar, Puccini's second opera. Edgar had not landed very well with the premiere, and this put Puccini in a perilous position. At a meeting of Ricordi shareholders, a majority voted to drop the young composer from the firm's roster. Ricordi stood up and told his shareholders that they would renew his protege stipend and said that he would resign if the board did not agree. Side note. Ricordi actually was the majority shareholder, so his threat to leave was empty, but it got the point across. While searching for the subject for his next opera, Ricordi offered the idea of a libretto by the Italian poet and playwright Giuseppe Giacosa, based on an original subject set in Russia. At first, Puccini was excited about the project and requested the final libretto by November of that year, 1889. By mid-July, however, Puccini wrote to his publisher that The more he thought about that Russia story, the more it terrified him. He continued, Let the contract with Jacosa continue. Surely he could find something more poetic, more likable, less gloomy, and rather nobler in conception. He ended with, I will discuss the matter personally with the poet upon my return from Germany. Puccini was being sent to Germany by Ricordi to see a production of Wagner's De Meistersinger. Ricordi was the Italian publisher of Wagner and was planning on a La Scala production during the upcoming carnival season. Puccini was asked to go and make sure that the new cuts were sufficient enough for the Italian opera house and Italian opera audiences. The trip was met with much criticism from other composers on the Ricordi roster. Some said that Puccini was not experienced enough for such a trip and to make that kind of decision. One even wrote, quote, I think that Puccini, with an unheard of irresponsibility, has taken on a task That will do him real harm. While at Bayreuth, Puccini also attended performances of Parsifal and Tristan und Isolde. Even though Puccini had not even began composing it, the influence of Wagner can clearly be heard in his upcoming opera, which would also prove to be his first major and international success. Thank you. 
there's going to be a lot of discussion coming up about France. After all, the opera is Manon Lascaux based on a French novel. So I thought it would be appropriate for us to enjoy a cocktail called the French 75. The drink was created during World War I at the New York Bar in Paris, which was later renamed Harry's New York Bar, and the bar was owned by Harry McElhaney. The combination of ingredients was said to have such a kick that it felt like being shelled with the powerful French 75 millimeter filled gun. So here's what you're going to need. You're going to need your cocktail shaker, some ice, a champagne glass. You're going to need some gin. Today I'm using Bombay, some fresh lemon juice, simple syrup, and of course, a good bottle of bubbly French champagne. So what you're going to do is put some ice in your cocktail shaker. Put one ounce of gin. Half ounce of lemon juice, preferably fresh lemon juice. A half ounce of simple syrup. Please don't buy it. Like we've said before, make it. It's really easy. Put all of this into your shaker. Put the lid on the shaker and shake. You want to shake it for about 10 seconds. Get it nice and cold. Then take the top off your shaker and strain it into a champagne glass. And now top with your champagne and enjoy. As a side note, please be careful when opening a bottle of champagne. There's a lot of pressure in there, and you don't want to shoot yourself in the eye. It'll hurt. Trust me, I've done it. And remember, with all champagne cocktails, it's going to have a little extra kick. The bubbles will go straight to your head. And as I like to say, champagne can take you from classy to sassy pretty quick. So, have fun and drink responsibly. I don't know about you, my friends, but I get a kick from champagne every time. I love the French 75, and I hope you're enjoying it as much as I'm enjoying it right now. In fact, if I keep enjoying it, I may not make it through the rest of this episode. Before leaving for his Germany trip, Puccini had already decided on the subject for his next opera. As early as 1885, of course knowing he still needed to finish Edgar, his librettist, Fontana, dangled the idea of Prévost's classic novel L'Histoire du Chevalier de Gria et de Manon Lescaut, hoping that its blend of tragedy and elegance might catch his imagination. Abbé Prévost was born in 1697 in France. He had a very interesting life. He was a Jesuit novice, a soldier, a Benedictine monk, and eventually a Protestant. From 1728 until 1734, he was exiled from France and lived in England and Holland. While in Holland, he was imprisoned for forgery. He returned to France and served as a court chaplain until he had to escape France once again 
when he was accused of writing satirical pamphlets. He returned one last time to France in 1742 and remained there until his death in 1763. While there, for this time, he was a full-time writer and lived a life complicated by mistresses and crippling debt. Side note, Prévost's book was banned from 1733 to 1735 because it was considered too scandalous for the time, you know, because of all the gambling, the theft, and the prostitution. In 1753, a new edition was published with a foreword warning the readers of, quote, a terrible example of the force of passion. The French composer Massenet had already set the Prévost novel to music in 1884. The opera was enjoying a very successful run around the world and was one of the most popular in the French rep. Puccini's decision to compose the opera was met with criticism from everyone, especially his publisher, Ricordi. Puccini is quoted as saying, A woman like Manon should have more than one lover. And when asked about his version compared to the Massenet, Puccini quipped, quote, Massenet's Manon is done in the French style with powdered wigs and minuets. My Manon will be done in the Italian style, full of passion. Side note, there was also another opera titled Manon Lescaut. The French composer Daniel Aubert debuted his opera in 1856. Opera had a really famous coloratura soprano aria that was nicknamed The Laughing Song, and it was very popular. In fact, it was so popular that Charles Dickens was a huge fan of the aria and would request it at salon parties. Never heard of Aubert? I bet you have. I bet you've heard of one of his lasting contributions to opera. The libretto to his 1833 opera, Gustave III, served as the base story for Verdi's Un Ballo in Mascara. Getting to the finished product was nothing short of a miracle for Puccini. After the not-so-successful libretto for Edgar, Puccini vowed to oversee the writing of all of his libretti and have final say for the final version. Manon Lescaut may be regarded as the first Puccini opera. And not only for the musical and the dramatic reasons, it provided the first instance of the wrangling, the quarreling, the arguments, the disputes, the indecisions, and the revisions, the tears, and the turmoil, 
which from then on were to characterize the labor pains associated with the birth of nearly all of Puccini's operas. The title page of the score for Manon Lescaut is missing one key listing, a librettist. That's because by the time the libretto was finished, seven different people had worked on the libretto and none of them wanted credit for it. The list included one composer-librettist, Leon Cavallo, two playwrights, two poets, among them Giacosa and Illica, Puccini's publisher Ricordi, and Puccini himself. Of course, it is important to mention, with all of the battles that ensued with the writing of the libretto of Manon Lescaut, one amazing thing did come out of it. A composer-playwright-poet partnership that would last several years and produce three of the most popular operas ever written, La Boheme, Posca, and Madame Butterfly. I am, of course, talking about the team of Puccini, Giacosa, and Illica. As the libretto took shape and Puccini proceeded with the composition, Ricordi kept reminding him to keep the opera short and keep it moving. Ricordi wrote, quote, It is only Wagner who is permitted to exceed all bounds with words devoid of common sense and ultra-Gothic notes. By mid-November of 1892, the opera was complete, and Puccini was finally free to go to Hamburg for the German premiere of La Ville. The premiere of Manon Lescaut was on February the 1st, 1893, in Turin. There were many fellow composers in the audience, including Mascagni. That night, Puccini and the cast received over 30 curtain calls. One critic declared, quote, Puccini is truly an Italian genius. Another critic said, quote, Puccini stands for what he is, one of the strongest, if not the strongest, of the young Italian opera composers. After the Covent Garden premiere in 1894, Bernard Shaw wrote, quote, In Manon Lescaut, the domain of Italian opera is enlarged by the annexation of Germany territory. Of course, this is speaking about the Wagnerian influence on Puccini in his use of the orchestra. Shaw went on to say the famous quote, Puccini looks to me more like the heir of Verdi than any of his rivals. People often wonder why Puccini would compose an opera based on a subject that had already been composed just a few years before him. And of course, little did he know, several years before that as well. The differences between the Puccini version and the Massenet version, it's interesting to see how it all breaks down. Massenet sticks closer to the original story. And it's said that Puccini chose certain scenes because he did not want it to look like he was copying Massenet. Puccini's opera breezes past the time that Degria and Manon spend living together, describing it in retrospect, but never actually displaying it on stage. In Massenet's version, this makes up about half of the opera, all of Acts 2 and Act 3. In Puccini's Act 1, it ends with them running off together, and Act 2 begins with Manon already having moved in with Durante. Massenet's opera, on the other hand, avoids the journey to the New World, and Manon's demise there. Instead, he chose to have her die on the road while traveling. Puccini would say later in life, quote, 
Manon is the only one of my operas that has never caused me any worry. Of course, he did entertain the idea of adding an intermediate act between Act 1 and Act 2. He even proposed the idea to Ilica. He felt it still needed a little of the story where the audience could see the two lovers happy, if even for a brief moment. In one revision, Puccini cut the big Act 4 aria Sola Perduta Abandonada because people felt it was too long and didn't move the story enough. However, when Toscanini conducted the opera 13 years later, he absolutely insisted to Puccini and Ricordi to restore the aria. Puccini put it back in, and it has remained there since. The Met Opera debut was in January of 1907 with Puccini in the audience. It was his first of two trips to America. In fact, there's a famous picture of Puccini standing at the foot of the Brooklyn Bridge. Look it up. It's really cool. The Met production was 14 years after the world premiere. The soprano, Lena Cavalieri, played Manon. She was often called the most beautiful woman in the world. She also starred in the silent film version seven years later, but nothing from that film survives today. In a tragic story, she died in Florence in an Allied bombing during World War II. It is said she didn't make it to her shelter in time because she wasted precious minutes collecting all of her jewelry, which, coincidentally, is what Manolo Sco does, and this causes her to get caught and arrested in Act Two, which, of course, leads to her death in Act Four. Speaking of Act Four and death, I'm often asked about the setting for Act 4. A little history first. Comfort women were described as those women, quote, of easy virtue, vagrants or outlaws, and those without family who arrived in the Louisiana Territory. They were sent by force to the colony, especially during the early period of the reign of Louis XV. In 1721, a ship carried nearly 90 women of childbearing age to Louisiana, and they were recruited from the Paris prisons. Most quickly found husbands among the residents of the colony. These women were most likely prostitutes or felons. Much like England did by sending their prisoners to Australia, the French were sending theirs to the New World to help boost the population. So, about that setting, Puccini describes it as una landa sterminata, or an exterminated land a vast wasteland, a desert, outside the Louisiana Territory. One would assume this would be around the New Orleans area. Now, I've been there many times, and I can tell you the only part of New Orleans that seems like an exterminated wasteland is Bourbon Street around 5 a.m., but that's a different episode. Biloxi, Mississippi served as the capital of the territory for a short time, as did Mobile, Alabama. Maybe the answer is Puccini just didn't understand American geography. And maybe this is why Massenet changed the ending, and she dies along the road, still in France. In a 1912 letter to his librettist, Illica, Puccini wrote, quote, To make the world weep, 
Therein lies everything. Love and grief were born with the world. Puccini wasn't talking specifically about Manon Lascaux, but the sentiment rings true for the doomed woman and her lover. The story is simple. A student and a young woman fall in love. Her sugar daddy has her arrested when she betrays him, and the student joins her on the prison ship to America where she dies. At the end of the opera, in her final breathless words, Manon gives us the only true message of hope in the entire opera. She says, quote, Oblivion will wipe away my faults, but my love doesn't die. It is interesting to note, a lot of the action actually takes place off stage, out of sight of the audience. While we are all out in the lobby during intermission having a drink, our beloved characters are going through hell. Between Act 1 and Act 2, Manon and Grieux have lived a somewhat happy life until she decides to leave her true love to live a life of luxury. Then, again, between Act 2 and Act 3, she has been arrested and sentenced to prison. And during this time, she has also been assigned a place on a ship with the other women of misfortune, where she will then be taken to serve out her sentence in the new land. Then, between Act 3 and Act 4, she and Degria have made it to the new world. Degria has had a duel over Manon with the nephew of the governor of the French colony. Believing he has killed the man, Degria and Manon have now set off for the British colony across the desert. And this is where we find them when the curtain finally rises on the final act. The 1986 Woody Allen film, Hannah and Her Sisters, actually has a scene that features Menon Lascaux. Carrie Fisher and Sam Watterson play the two characters. Sam's character sneaks into the kitchen at a party to listen to a radio broadcast of Aida from the Met. And he talks to Carrie Fisher's character, and tells her that he has a private box at the Met. And later in the movie, we find that he takes Carrie Fisher's character to the Met to see the opera Manon Lascaux. And where it picks up in the opera is Act 4 during the aria, Sola Perduta Abandonada. Movie critic Zachary Wolfe argues that opera in American movies is often presented as lush, static, and stale, but not so in Hannah and Her Sisters. Opera going is shown as organic to its characters' lives. Opera, in the best way, is no big deal, Wolf writes. 
Until opera stops being associated with fancy dates, it is doomed to struggle for relevance. There have also been several films dating all the way back to 1907, ballets and plays all based on the story of Menon. Massenet even composed a sequel to his opera, and the one-act opera is titled The Portrait of Menon, and depicts de Greer as an old man, staring at a portrait of Menon. My recommended recording for today, you've already been hearing some clips from in this episode. I don't always listen to Callas, but when I do, it's this recording of Manon Lascaux. Maria Callas is brilliant in this role. In fact, it's my favorite thing that she sings. She's on stage with the great tenor De Stefano, and it's conducted by my Puccini hero, Tullio Serafin. A brilliant recording that's recently been re-released and remastered on CD. I highly recommend it. Okay, my friends, uh, I got a couple emails this week and I uh, want to get those answered for you. Margaret from St. Louis has asked probably what is going to be one of my favorite questions ever. What makes Manon a strong woman? We could literally do an entire season of episodes to answer this question. So I'm going to try to answer it pretty quick for you. So think back. Actually, it's kind of funny that you've asked this question. Think back to the beginning of the episode when I mentioned that Cindy Lauper song, Girls Just Want to Have Fun, and that Madonna song, Material Girl. That's actually kind of the answer to your question right there. She was a very strong woman. She knew exactly what she wanted, and she knew what she had to do to get it. Unfortunately, she was a little pulled by her heartstrings. She was in love with De Grier, but she knew that a poor student was not going to feed her materialistic needs. Also, in the novel, the Prevo novel, she is actually one of the earliest imaginings of a femme fatale. Manon has actually sparked the imagination of artists and the public across the eras and the genres. Think Carmen. Think Marguerite. Think all of these great, strong literary characters that no matter what they had to do, they were going to get what they wanted. And they were very driven to those purposes and also, unfortunately, to their demise. Again, we could talk for hours on this subject, and I hope that I've scratched a little bit of the surface for you. One book that does come to mind is titled Carmen and Turandot, Femme Fatale to Femme Créatrice in Opera. It's by Edith Zack. Uh, it's published in 1999. Check it out. There will be some information in the book that also will help you kind of dig deeper into this question. It's an excellent question, Margaret, from St. Louis. The second question comes from Dimitri, and Dimitri wrote in all the way from Siberia. Hello, Dimitri. I hope it's cooler there than it is in New York City right now. Dimitri asks, when listening to the opera, I notice that it sounds like the style of the music changes. Why is this? Well, Dimitri, that's really interesting. Remember, this was Puccini's third opera. Before this was Lavili and Edgar. And with this opera, also remember, he had traveled, he had been studying a lot of Wagner, listening to a lot of Wagner. There was a lot of things happening in the opera world at the time. Mascagni, Leon Cavallo, Massenet, everyone, all of these opera composers, everything was being composed around him. And of course, he was hearing this. And while he's composing the opera, there's a, there, no, there's a time lapse here. And what we hear at the very beginning of Act One is almost light and bubbly music. 
an extension of the bel canto period, this happy music. And then by the time we get to act four, we are at the Puccini that we know and love, that very dark, very enigmatic music. Now, of course, the melodies that we know throughout Puccini, this is, by the way, one of Puccini's most melodic operas, his use of melody, his use of leitmotifs, and so on and so forth throughout this entire opera. Again, that's a Wagner influence. But by the time we get to Act Four in this opera, we are hearing hints of what we're going to hear for many years to come from the rest of his operas. I like to tell people that with this opera, when you start at Act One, you have a young composer, even though he was 32 at the time when, when it debuted. But when you start at Act One, you have a young Italian composer. And when you get to the end of Act Four, you have a very mature Italian composer. And so that's why when you're listening to it, it does sound like the style of the music does change because it is indeed evolving with the characters and evolving as he's composing it. So that's an excellent question, Dimitri. I hope you're well in Siberia. For this episode, I'd like to give a shout out to an opera company that I have a special affinity for that I've had a lot of fun working with over the past few years. It's a really great company in a really beautiful part of the country, Amarillo Opera in Amarillo, Texas. Check them out, amarilloopera.org. Amarillo sits right in the panhandle. It's the jewel of the panhandle. Amarillo Opera performs in the beautiful theater, the Globe News Center, an incredible chorus and orchestra. It's a great place to work. They treat their artists really well and do some really wonderful productions. If you find yourself somewhere between Dallas and Santa Fe, stop in Amarillo, check them out, go to their website, amarilloopera.org, and see what they're doing. I guarantee you, you're absolutely going to have a great time. Join us next time, my friends, as we talk about Puccini's first full-length opera, Edgar. We'll talk about everything that went right for the young composer and everything that went wrong. During all of this, we'll be enjoying a Dutch and Stormy, an adequately named cocktail. Until then, my friends, stay thirsty for knowledge. The Mischievous Maestro podcast is researched and written by me, Andy Anderson. Recording engineer and co-producer is Ryan Hall. Art director and co-producer, Jefferson Reidenauer. Very personal assistant to The Mischievous Maestro and co-producer, Megan Keane. Production assistant, co-producer, and all-round great guy is Yvonne Kahn. Publicist for Andy Anderson is Jonathan Blaylock. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite platform to get all of the upcoming episodes with exciting drinks. To learn more about The Mischievous Maestro and for the drink recipes, visit our website, themischievousmaestro.com, and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The Mischievous Maestro is so much more than a podcast. It's a lifestyle. I would like to remind you to please drink responsibly. If you're not old enough, don't do it. And if you are old enough, do it in moderation. And if you're having a bad day and refuse to drink in moderation, then please follow these simple rules for overindulgence. Please don't drink and drive. Please don't drink too much and then email your boss asking for a raise. And please, for all that's holy in the world, don't drink too much and then drunk text your ex at 3 a.m. This podcast is the sole property of the mischievous maestro and may not be used in whole or any part without the express written permission of Andy Anderson. 